the strangers coming in from the outside. Ruth was a foreigner who was brought into the fold of the family of God, brought into the line of Messiah. In Daniel, we're going to see a group of individuals from God's people be sent out into a land of foreigners in order to transform, in order to take God's word, God's truth to a people who had never heard it before. It is a land of of unusual places, circumstances, time. It's not a situation that the people of Israel would have ever chosen for themselves. They found themselves as strangers in a strange land. That's why we've titled our series that this morning. And so I want to invite you to turn with me to the book of Daniel. Uh, We're going to be in chapter 1 today, verses 1 through 7, as we kind of introduce, set the table for what is to come over the coming months. Uh, If you didn't get a listening guide on your way in, that will help you uh, have some space to take notes, follow the text and the outline. You can slip your hand up and Alex will make sure that you receive one of those from the back this morning. As you turn to Daniel 1, 1 through 7. So we're going to meet this morning the four main characters of the, book of, the, of the book of Daniel. We're going to meet four young men who become strangers in a strange land. They love God and were devoted to him, but suddenly found themselves as aliens in a culture that would try to refashion them in, their, in its own image, violently if necessary. And so as we open this book, we are going to see so many parallels to modern life, to where we are, to the culture that we inhabit, that seeks to refashion us in its own image. Uh, and, And violence has not been the name of the game so far, but I think all of us don't have to imagine too hard to picture a reality years down the road where that may be the case. But all of us who follow Jesus Christ are strangers in a strange land. We are people who don't belong here. We are aliens, we are sojourners, wanderers, looking for our eternal home, looking for our celestial destination, but having to find a way to live here in a way that glorifies God, in a way that honors God and is faithful to what he has called us to be. I think we'll resonate with the strangeness of this world we're going to discover this morning. I think we'll resonate with the crushing difficulty of the choices that these four young men are going to face as we look through the book over the next few months. But most of all, I think we will resonate with the God who sustained them and the God who caused them to flourish in the midst of this strange land. And if you're here this morning and you're listening this morning and you're not a Christian, I hope you'll see in this book, in these four young men, a captivating picture of what faith in a real God looks like against a backdrop of a world in love with power, glory, influence, and wealth. And I pray also that you'll see a glimmer of that same faith in us here at Trinity against the backdrop of a world that's still in love with those exact same things. So little has changed in the past 2,500 years, it seems. And when you see this faith, I pray that you'll say, I want that faith. I want to know that God who could sustain these men, these young men as strangers in a strange land. And so this morning, we're going to unpack the first seven verses. We're going to set the table. We're going to look at the situation that these guys are plunged into and begin to look at the pressures that they're going to face and ask ourselves, how will we respond to these same pressures that we face in our world? So join me in Daniel 1 as we read this morning, verses 1 through 7. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. 
Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace, and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. And they were to be educated for three years. And at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar. Hananiah he called Shadrach. Mishael he called Meshach. And Azariah he called Abednego. That's God's word for us this morning. Let's pray as we dive in. Our God and Father, eternal God of ages past and here present with us this morning, we ask you that what we know not, you would teach us. What we have not, you would give us. What we are not, you would make us by the power of your word that goes out by your spirit. God, fill us this morning. Transform us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so Daniel 1.1, we start at the beginning of the book, and as we open a new book, as we start a new journey, the first thing that we have to do is we have to set the context, right? What is this world that we have just parachuted into? Well, we've been in Ruth for the past couple of months. We've been in Ruth, the story that took place before King David, actually finding out some of the, the circumstances that brought about the birth of King David. And this morning, as we open the book of Daniel, a lot of time has passed since Ruth. The land of Israel is in a very different place than it was when Ruth and Naomi and Boaz lived in Bethlehem. And this book is dated in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah. That's what verse 1 tells us. And that puts us in the year, about the year 605 B.C., Depending on when that third year was, it could be 606, it could be 605, but about 605 BC. It's been about 500 years since the story of Ruth and Naomi and Boaz. And this book that we're going to read contains a sampling of stories about the lives of Daniel and his friends. We've just finished in Ruth a book of narrative, a book of story, of history, telling us about individuals and how they lived and what they did. And in these first six chapters of Daniel, we're going to see very much the same thing. We're going to see stories about Daniel and his friends, these young men who were taken to the land of Babylon. But the book also contains a collection of visions about the future, They start popping up as early as chapter 2, but primarily they come in the back half of the book from chapters 7 through 12. So we're going to see something different. We're going to see a look of of prophetic words, of of speech about the future, strange visions that can be difficult to understand, and we're going to dive into those together and understand what it is God is saying to Daniel and what it is God is saying to us by these things. And if we get there and you find them confusing, that's okay. Your pastors do too, and you're going to find that Daniel actually found them confusing when he saw them. So we're all on level territory here. But the book is a book of stories, of narrative, and a book of visions about the future, about prophecy. And so when was it written? Who was it written by? There's never any claim to to authorship in the book directly, um, but in the back half of the book, when we read these visions, they're written in the first person. And so it would, um, it would seem to be that Daniel is the writer of these things. The stories, the narratives, are written in the third person, but that doesn't mean that Daniel necessarily wasn't the one to compile them. It's most likely that this book was compiled by Daniel near the end of his life, uh, which would have put it about the year 530. So this is Daniel, an old man, 
who has seen much, who has been through much, looking back on his life, writing these stories of God's faithfulness to him and to his friends, and writing these visions that God gave him about the future. So we're going to say that the book was written about the year 530. Now, I don't want to spend too much time on this, but this is worth mentioning and pointing out that many modern scholars today are, are rather adamant that the book was not written by Daniel in the year 530, but was a later construction, that it was written about the year 165 BC by someone under Daniel's name, under a false name. And some of them would say that Daniel may not have ever even existed at all, that he's a legendary figure, and, and we can dismiss this as being actual history. And I, I mentioned this this morning briefly, because that can be a little bit unnerving when we first hear that, right? When we hear that, that scholars, I mean, scholars are people who study a lot, and we want to put a value on study and education. And so when, when we hear scholars dismiss Daniel as being written well after the fact and being not written by Daniel, not at the time that these events took place, that can shake us a little bit. We think, is it, is it trustworthy? Is the Bible just, is this made up stuff? But do you know why they, they are very quick to dis dismiss the historicity of Daniel? And why they're very quick to date it at that very specific date of 165 BC? Well, it's because... Some of the prophecy in the back half of the book fits so, so well with the life and the deeds of a conqueror named Antiochus Epiphanes, who invaded Israel between the years 173 and 165 BC, and he led a, a, an attempt to, to basically annihilate the faith of the Jewish people through a reign of terror and brutality. And he was eventually thrown out and overcome by what they call the Maccabean Rebellion. The, the Jews today commemorate that with the event of Hanukkah. Um, but scholars say, look, this book fits so well, some of that prophecy fits so well with what Antiochus Epiphanes did that this cannot have been written 400 years prior. It, it has to be someone writing it as prophecy after the fact, trying to, to pose as someone who, who has seen God. Because in fact, if we look at the actual historical markers of the book, if we look at the language, the construction of the Hebrew and Aramaic, this book was written, it's bilingual, one of the few books in the Bible that's written in two different languages. The language reads much more like 5th century, 6th century BC Aramaic and Hebrew than it does 2nd century. The, the marks of the language, the words, the grammar, all of it point to a book that was written at the time of Daniel, not at this later time when Epiphanes was actually around. And then also we have found scraps of the book of Daniel, fragments of all 12 chapters turn up in the Dead Sea Scrolls. I don't want to get too much into the Dead Sea Scrolls, but these are a collection of manuscripts, a lot of biblical manuscripts that were discovered in a cave in the ancient Near East, uh, and they date back to about 120 BC. And we have these scrolls, and then we have the writings of those at the community of Qumran who kept the scrolls. And these individuals write about Daniel like he is a prophet on the level of Isaiah and Ezekiel. They accept him as a, a prophet of the Old Testament that fits right in with these others. Now, if the book was written in 165 BC, that gives it 45 years to be disseminated, to be accepted by the Jewish religious community and held up as a prophet on the level of Isaiah, Ezekiel, the big guns of Jewish prophetic history. It's very, very unlikely that that could have happened in that span of 45 years. So what I'm telling you this morning is when you hear people say, scholars say that well, we can't believe that Daniel is written as old as it is, the evidence doesn't back that up. The only evidence that doesn't back it up is the presupposition that God doesn't predict the future. And so when we look at this, we need to see and understand that what we have in the book of Daniel is, is trustworthy, it's true, it's faithful. 
Pastor and scholar Dale Ralph Davis says this as he examines the evidence. He says, I have simply outlined some of the problems that I have with a second century BC date for Daniel. Our considerations about language and time suggest that the latest possible date for Daniel would range between 300 and 220 BC. And that still leaves critics with the problem of predictive prophecy. I can't claim to prove a 6th century date, but I see too many problems with the 2nd century position, and I haven't the faith to overcome those obstacles. Given those, it seems better to me to take a naive view and posit a date of circa 530 BC. So, the point of that rabbit trail, Daniel's true and trustworthy, and we can go to the text and and see God's hand there, and we can go through the evidence that we have through history and archaeology and language and see this rings true. This was really written by a real individual who really lived through these stories. And so we pick up our story in the year 605 BC. So like I said, it's been 500 years since the story of Ruth. And we can be tempted when we look at that and say, well, I mean, it's still the Old Testament, right? You know, we fit this all under the umbrella of Bible times. And I think a lot of times, if you're like me, you operate with this assumption that, well, Bible times are Bible times. It's all the same. Well, 500 years is a long time. Right, 500 years ago, Christopher Columbus finding the new world was breaking news. So a lot can happen in the span of 500 years. So we need to understand where did we leave Ruth and where are we finding Daniel here today? Because we're, we're dropped in to strange times and a strange reality that we find these young men in here in verse one. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and he besieged it. Right, Ruth looked forward to David, to Solomon, to to a kingdom of splendor, of God's favor and blessing, his promises poured out on his people. But it's now been a long time since the glory days of David and Solomon. And now we see not a kingdom full of splendor and peace, but rather a kingdom that is broken, humiliated, and conquered. When we open up the Bible and we see Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it, we expect to read some version of, but God delivered them out of the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. God worked some miracle. He rose up some judge, some prophet, some king, some warrior, and he delivered his people. But that's not what happened. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. These are strange, dark times for the people of Israel, but it's important for us to note right off the bat that they are not an accident. This is not a history that they are stumbling into through some random chance. You see, after Solomon's death, the kingdom was split into a result of God's judgment on his unfaithfulness. The northern kingdom was called Israel, consisted of 10 of the 12 tribes. The southern kingdom was called Judah considered, and consisted of two of the 12 tribes, including the kingly line of David. David's descendants sat on the throne of the southern kingdom, the kingdom of Judah. And Jehoiakim, who we see this morning, is one of David's descendants. Now, the northern kingdom in Israel, it went downhill fast. Like You read through the kings of the northern kingdom and they rejected God wholesale. You will struggle to find anyone with anything that the Bible has good to say about them. They rejected God. They embraced idolatry and the practices of the nations around them. And the southern kingdom 
was more of a mixed bag, right? David had some good descendants like Jehoshaphat, one of my favorite guys in all of scripture, but I won't chase that rabbit right now. And there were also some really, really questionable descendants as well that sat on the throne in Judah. The general trajectory in Judah though was downward. It wasn't getting better. It was getting worse the farther on you went in history. And so God sent prophets to warn of coming judgment. You read Isaiah, you read Ezekiel, you read these prophets, and they were sent to say, you are going the wrong way. Turn around, repent, come back to God, and he will save you, or or else judgment is coming. In fact, God had been promising this, had been warning them of this for hundreds of years even before that. When he first delivered their ancestors from slavery in Egypt, he warned them, If you turn from me, if you embrace the practices of the nations I'm driving out ahead of you, I will bring judgment to correct you, to turn you back to me because I love you. I want you to listen to this. This is an extended passage from the book of Leviticus where God warns his people what will happen if they reject his commandments as they come into the land of promise. Leviticus chapter 26, verses 14 through 33, he says, but if you will not listen to me, and will not do all these commandments, if you spurn my statutes, and if your soul abhors my rules, so that you will not do all my commandments, but you break my covenant, then I will do this to you. I will visit you with panic, with wasting disease and fever that consume the eyes and make the heart ache. And you shall sow your seed in vain, for your enemies shall eat it. I will set my face against you, and you shall be struck down before your enemies." Those who hate you shall rule over you, and you shall flee where none pursues you. And if in spite of this you will not listen to me, then I will discipline you again sevenfold for your sins, and I will break the pride of your power, and I will make your heavens like iron and the earth like bronze, and your strength shall be spent in vain, for your land shall not yield its increase, and the trees of the land shall not yield their fruit." Then if you walk contrary to me and will not listen to me, I will continue striking you sevenfold for your sins. And I will let loose the wild beasts against you, which shall bereave you of your children and destroy your livestock and make you few in number so that your roads shall be deserted. And if by this discipline you are not turned to me, but walk contrary to me, then I also will walk contrary to you. And I myself will strike you sevenfold for your sins. And I will bring a sword upon you that shall execute vengeance for the covenant. And if you gather within your cities, I will send pestilence among you, and you shall be delivered into the hand of the enemy. When I break your supply of bread, ten women shall bake your bread in a single oven, and shall dole out your bread again by weight, and you shall eat and not be satisfied. But if in spite of this you will not listen to me, but walk contrary to me, then I will walk contrary to you in fury, and I myself will discipline you sevenfold for your sins. You shall eat the flesh of your sons, and you shall eat the flesh of your daughters, and I will destroy your high places, and cut down your incense altars, and cast your dead bodies upon the dead bodies of your idols, and my soul will abhor you. And I will lay your cities waste and will make your sanctuaries desolate and I will not smell your pleasing aromas. And I myself will devastate the land so that your enemies who settle in it shall be appalled at it. And I will scatter you among the nations and I will unsheath the sword after you and your land shall be a desolation and your cities shall be a waste. Somewhere on the order of six to seven hundred years have passed since God made this promise. 
And as we saw in Ruth, the cycle had already begun of the people rebelling against God, rejecting him, God sending, delivering them into the hands of their enemies. He sends a deliverer. They repent. The deliverer brings them back and the cycle repeats and continues. But as it repeats and continues, it's rolling downhill. Think of the stock market. And if you watch the stock market, market it's always doing this, but you can follow general trend lines. Is it doing this? That's what the, is going on in the land of Israel. And God sends prophets, and he warns, and he pleads, and now the time has run out. A little over 100 years before we pick up the story here, God had used the pagan nation of Assyria and wiped out the northern kingdom. Israel is gone. They've been scattered among the nations. And Judah, the southern kingdom, because of the faithfulness of some of David's line and God's grace and mercy to them, Judah was spared for a time. When Assyria came through, King Hezekiah prayed for deliverance and God answered his prayer. But even this Hezekiah quickly turned to political maneuvering to make alliance with Babylon for protection in future conflicts and for trusting ultimately in men and alliance rather than in the strength that comes from God. The Lord sent word to Hezekiah through Isaiah the prophet that Babylon, where he sought alliance, would ultimately be his undoing the undoing of the subsequent generations of his family. And that check in verse one of Daniel has now come due. Judah is now ruined. It's King Jehoiakim is deposed. It's people are subjugated. And even the Lord's temple, verse two, is ransacked by foreign generals. He gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar to the house of his God. And so while the times that these people find themselves in are seemingly strange, seemingly chaotic, they are not so in spite of God's faithfulness, but rather because of it. Because God keeps his promises. And sometimes his promises are to bring us to ruin so that we have no road left to run other than to return in repentance to him. He knows that's the only place our souls will find rest. And so there are some times where he will block us off. He will shut us down. He will visit us in judgment in order to turn us back around. And he does this, not as a capricious child throwing a temper tantrum, but he does it with patience, long-suffering grace, six to 700 years in this case of long-suffering grace, and at great personal cost to himself. You might think, what? That was my reaction when I first kind of got into this. I want you to consider this. I want you to consider how these events would have played in the media at the time. Right? We know that the reason that God allowed Jerusalem to be overthrown and judged was because he was judging his people. He was chastising and disciplining them. And the people of Israel and Judah would have understood that. But what would the surrounding nations have thought? They wouldn't have known such a thing. You see, in that time when each nation had their own tribal deity or deities in most cases that they worshipped, whenever two nations fought each other in combat and went to war, it was thought of the people at the time that the victorious nation, their god was victorious over the nation that lost. And so when one nation defeated another, it was because their gods were mightier than the gods that they were conquering, the gods of the people that they were conquering. And so... While the people of Israel would have understood what God was doing here, he was fulfilling his promise of judgment, what the people of Babylon would have thought is, our gods are greater than this Yahweh. Who is Yahweh? I'm a general. I've walked into Yahweh's temple. I've taken his gold. Who is he? 
and it would go out among the nations. Babylon rules over Israel. Where is Israel's God? Who is he? I want you to consider this. They would see Yahweh as belittled, mocked, and humiliated. Even the instruments of his holy worship have been carried away to bring glory to Babylonian gods. Pastor and scholar Dale Ralph Davis says, the Lord shows here that he is a God who is willing to suffer shame if it might awaken his people to their danger. Now, if that doesn't send your mind running a few hundred years in the future past this to a man named Jesus... God is willing to be mocked. He is willing to have his name drugged through the mud in order to bring redemption to his people. Even here, even in this strange reality that these people are being cast into, God is not asleep, but God is working a plan of redemption and he is willing to suffer infamy. He is willing to suffer disgrace in order to accomplish it, just as he suffered disgrace to bring me back from my sin, to bring you back from your sin. And so when you find yourself in strange and uncomfortable times, do you remember that God is still in complete control? And do you cling to what you know to be true about him? Do you let him tell the story? Do you let him set the narrative? And so in this strange reality, we meet some individuals who are carried away in verse 3 to a strange place. Right, Just as Judah's treasures, just as the holy instruments of the temple are carried away to serve the Babylonian gods, so also the choice treasures of Judah's people are being carried away to serve the Babylonian king. Verse 3, then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility. They're carrying them away to the kingdom of Babylon. So this Ashpenaz, the chief eunuch, now that word can literally mean what we think of when we think eunuch. It can also just mean official. Um, But this is one who was over the management of the king's day-to-day affairs, his household, his empire. He is sent to take the best and the brightest from from Judah, right? He's sent to take some of the nobility, some of the royal family. Verse 4 is going to say, use without blemish. This language, without blemish, this is sacrificial language, right? This is the language the Bible uses when they are to bring a lamb without spot or blemish. And so the the language is meant to draw us to, this is a a portion, the best, the, the very best of the land of its people are being taken away. And they're being taken to Babylon, pulled out of Israel in order to serve their king. These young men that were being taken away, these youths, were likely between the ages of 13 and 16, young teenagers. And so when we're about to meet Daniel and his friends, this is how old they are when this goes down, 13 to 16 years old. The idea was simple, take the best and the brightest that Israel had produced, but who were still young enough to be successfully re-educated and assimilated into Babylonian culture and bring them to serve the king, bring them into the king's house. Because now everyone who surrounds them, everyone who influences them, everyone who has anything to say to speak into their life will be Babylonian. There will be no reminders of their own life, old life following them. No parents or elders to remind them of who they are and where they come from. They are on their own now. They are taken to a strange place. Well, it would seem that they are on their own. But we're going to find out very quickly in this story that that is not the case. Because in their stories, we're going to see that the Lord follows them to this strange place. He goes with them. He's there in the darkness. 
He does not abandon them, but he walks beside them through difficulties and rituals. Sometimes literally walks beside them through difficulties and rituals. We'll see in a couple chapters. God has not abandoned his people in this strange place, but he walks with them. Author N.D. Wilson says, do not fear the shadowy places. You will never be the first one there. Another went ahead and down until he came out the other side. That's the kind of God that went with Daniel, that went with his friends. That's the kind of God that accompanies us. Whether we find ourselves in this place on a Sunday morning where we have a kindred fellowship and spirit with others who love and serve God, or whether you're in your office where nobody cares a rip about Jesus Christ, God is with you. He walks the path alongside you. Ever feel like a stranger in your own country? Like everything around you is not only foreign, but opposed to who you are as a follower of Jesus? Be reminded, God is with you. He he will never leave you or forsake you, even to the end of the age. You are never alone. No matter what strange place you might find yourself in, you might think it rivals the strange place that Daniel finds himself in. But Daniel's God walked with him through that strange place, and so does yours. And upon bringing them to a strange place, they find themselves cast into a strange culture. Look at verses four and five. They bring these young men, both of the royal family and the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance, skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, competent to stand in the king's palace, and teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. And the king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate. Of the wine that he drank, they were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. So for three years, they would be taught the language and the culture of the Babylonian people. The Chaldeans is another name for the Babylonians. They would eat from the king's table. They would drink his wine. And when this period of schooling and training and re-education was complete, then they would be fit to stand as servants of the king, as managers of his affairs. So what all would this entail? What does this re-education look like? I think it's important for us to step back and realize, like this is not just a matter of transferring out of Judah Central High School and into Babylon Prep. It's not just new teachers teaching the same old coursework. This is a complete revolution of everything that these young men thought they knew. This is a radical reorientation of everything that they'd been taught. So they would have been taught the language of Babylon, Akkadian, Sumerian, Aramaic, and they would have largely been taught these languages by reading the religious texts of the Babylonians that were written in them. They would have to understand the central mythology of Babylonian religion, of the Babylonian gods who brought the world about, not Yahweh, not this defeated deity of Israel. They would have been taught astronomy, mathematics, and medicine, the the tools that they would need to be successful managers of the king's affairs. And what we don't think about, I think, is that they would undoubtedly have been taught the Babylonian art of divination, right? They would have been taught not only the theory of Babylon religion, but practically how to discern the will of the Babylonian gods so that the king can make good decisions. So they would have been taught how to use unusual earthly and astronomical signs and phenomena and even bizarre customs like the examination of the livers of dead sheep in order to interpret the will of the gods and know Hero king is what you should do. Here's what the signs, here's what the omens tell you. 
They would have learned methods of interpreting dreams to help the king make beneficial decisions and choices about the future. In some, they would have been presented with a world of information and practice that was diametrically opposed to what they were brought up to believe about God, what they were brought up to believe about God's word, what they were brought up to believe about God's world. And from what we're told here, this new reality, this education, wasn't accompanied by the harsh hand of an evil tyrant, but rather they were invited to enjoy the riches that came from association with the king. They were given a daily portion of the food the king ate, of the wine that he drank. They were invited to enjoy the riches that came from association with the king. Can you see the plan here? We're going to tell you everything about what it means to be Babylonian. And by the way, see what it gets you. See this world. You, look what your culture, look what your God brought about in the life of your people. And look at the glory of Babylon. And it's sitting right here for you to be a part of it. Right? The message is clear. It was, in the words of the great philosopher P.T. Barnum, or at least the Hugh Jackman version of P.T. Barnum, it's everything you ever want. It's everything you ever need. It's right here in front of you. This is where you want to be. They were introduced to a strange culture and told, be transformed. Become like us. This would have been an incredible pull, right? You're 13. Think about that. You're 13. Remember how desperately you wanted to fit in at 13. Remember how desperately you wanted everybody to think that you were in the cool crowd that, and just to, to have a friend, to have someone who respected you, who saw you as important. These guys at 13 to 16 years old have been pulled away from your family, your home, your people are conquered. You may not know if mom or dad are alive or dead. You're plunged into a world now of wealth and comfort that challenges everything you believe and replaces it with superior truths, right? Those old truths have won the war or have lost the war against these new ones. Your people have failed and come and join us and find all the grand personal fulfillment and success your heart could dream of. Does that sales pitch sound familiar at all? Because we might not be in a foreign land. We might not be a part of a deposed people. But our culture gives us that same pitch, right? These truths have won the war over that old superstition. Leave it behind. Look what awaits you. Look at the glory and the wonder that we have produced, the tower that we stand upon as humanity. But as we're going to see, these young men remarkably ran everything they encountered, every idea, every assumption, every command, through the filter of God's revealed word. That is how they survived this. They would not be conformed to this strange culture, but ultimately they would transform many of whom they came in contact with. And so it, it should prompt us to sit back and ask ourselves, what ideas, assumptions, and practices have you embraced from our culture without a careful scrutiny against what God has said? You know, there's an old adage that says a fish doesn't know that he's wet. If you're only ever in water, you don't have a concept of what it is to not be in water. And when we live in a culture like this, it's so hard to separate ourselves from the culture that we live in. It's so hard to see where we're accepting things, not because God says them, but because it's just what we do. It's all around us. 
So which of our culture's truths have you been tempted to accept? I'm going to pause it to you this morning and take just a couple of minutes to say, I think two of the ones we need to be most on guard about are the two probably hottest button cultural zeitgeist items going on today, and that's issues of sexuality and issues of race. It's very easy when we approach issues of sexuality and race to not be colored by who we are, what we've always thought, the people around us, and not by what God has said in his word. So which of our culture's attitudes towards sexuality have you allowed to influence your thinking? I mean, surely not the obvious ones, right? I mean, none of us is going to be waving the flag for the sexual revolution. You know, we understand what God's word has said. We, we say that we believe that this is true, that we should stand for, for marriage as one man, one woman. That's the way God designed sexuality to work and to flourish. But what about the subtle, subtle things that our culture says? The way our culture cheapens sexuality through jokes, comments, even casual fashions that render it as commonplace rather than something that's precious and sacred. When you decide what to joke about, laugh about, wear out the front door, are you thinking more about how it will glorify God? Or are you thinking about whether it looks like what you see on TV, your favorite website, what your friends are doing? It's a difficult thing to know how to live in a sex-saturated culture like we do and make good and right decisions. The only way you're going to do it is by asking, how would God have me to do this? And if we just kind of go with what's easy and what's with the flow, we're going to find ourselves picking up things without even realizing from the culture around us. And what about on the topic of race? I would suggest to you that there are, there are two temptations, and all of us, based on our background, our company that we keep, our ideas are more prone to one temptation or the other. So let me ask you, which are you more prone to? To wistfully longing for the good old days of Americana, apple pie, and a main street full of decent, hardworking folk? Not thinking about how many people of color got run over to pave that main street? Or, or maybe do you feel the weight of ra racial injustice, of racial prejudice? But you end up talking, tweeting, and thinking about it in a way that looks a whole lot like the approach of the culture at large. There's not really much to differentiate your thoughts on the matter as someone who doesn't know God. And our culture at large doesn't know the first lick about reconciliation. It doesn't know anything about reconciliation with God, and it doesn't know anything about reconciliation with man. You see, when the culture comes at you with an idea or a slogan, whether that slogan comes from the left or whether that slogan comes with the right, what are you filtering it through? What are you allowing to define your views of love of neighbor, of racial reconciliation? Because we have to come through God's word, a word that calls the subtle supremacist to kneel before a Palestinian Jewish homeless man, to bow the knee, to worship this God, who came as an outsider, who came as a reject, who came as an outcast, one from whom men hid their faces? What's your attitude like towards those that people hide their face from? But God's word also calls those who think they are woke to come awake, to rise from the dead, O sleeper, and the light of Christ will shine on you. It doesn't, know, it doesn't matter how much you, in the eyes of this world, fight for justice, do you fight for the justice of God? Do you approach it from, where, from a position that says, what does God's word tell me that I ought to do in order to love my neighbor, in order to love my brother? The culture is squishing at us from both sides. 
And there are different days of the week where I fall into different ones of those temptations. It usually depends on which, which side gets to me on Twitter first in the morning, right? But have you, are you thinking about these things? Are you reading the culture and saying, what does God's word say about that? Or are you just kind of letting yourself ride the waves, float on along? If Daniel and his friends had just rode the waves, they'd have been shipwrecked by the end of month number two. But they made it through three years of re-education. And they came out the other side with a faith in God we're going to see as quick as next week that is rock solid in the face of a culture that wants to transform them and make them into something else. Because it's not just that the culture is wanting to assimilate them into a strange culture. It's wanting to give them a whole new strange identity. Verses 6 and 7. Among these that were carried off, among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he calls Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. So we're introduced to these four guys. These are going to be your four main characters in the story of Daniel. Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And they're given new Babylonian names here. And we need to point out, this is very, very significant. Like, this is not just what was very common in our culture. If you look at the 20th century, when immigrants came to the United States from other cultures, it was very common to take on a more Americanized version of a name. So whether that name was, whether your family was Chinese or Italian, a lot of them would kind of bring in a more Americanized version of the family name in order to fit into the culture, to assimilate into it. That's not what's going on here. This is not just a matter of, hey, let's give these guys names that don't sound so funky so that they can fit in at Babylon High. This is something that is a destruction, a cutting off of their identity. Names in the ancient world had meaning. Names made a statement about you and about the God that you served. And these new names for these four men was all about making new statements. Daniel means Elohim is my judge. Elohim, one of the words in the Hebrew language for God. That's what his name means. Elohim is my judge. But he becomes Belteshazzar, which means may Bel protect his life. Bel being one of the Babylonian gods. Hananiah, whose name means Yahweh is gracious. He becomes Shadrach, which means Aku is exalted. Aku, one of the Babylonian deities. Mishael, whose name means, I love this one, who is what Elohim is. He becomes Meshach, which means who is what Aku is. And Azariah, whose name means Yahweh is my helper, becomes Abednego, the servant of Nebo, another Babylonian deity. The point is clear, right? The Babylonians are saying, you, you don't belong to your God anymore. You're one of us now. You're one of our people. You serve our gods. Over the next few months, get ready to read the story of four young men who reject that offer. Who say, our identity is not in Bel, it's not in Aku, it's not in Nebo, it is in Yahweh, the God of heaven and earth. And we march by his drum. We follow his commands. We find who we are in who he is, not in this strange place. What about you? What have you constructed your identity out of? 
is the fact that the triune God is your judge and justifier, the most central thing about you, as close as your own name? Or are you choosing to find your identity in the akus of this world, whether they're success, social standing, activism, popularity, wealth, even outward religiosity? You live in a culture that seeks every day to redefine your identity. Where are you placing it? Where do you dine? Do you eat at the king's table? Fat food and choice drink? Or do you come to the Lord's table for bread and wine and find your satisfaction and fulfillment there? These young men, in a strange reality, were taken to a strange place, immersed in a strange culture, and given a strange new identity from those who sought to turn them away from the living God. I cannot wait to begin to see the tales of how they said, no, we will serve the Lord. Knowing full well it could cost them their lives. We're going to see a story in a couple chapters where they're threatened with death and they say, no, we're not doing it. Our God can save us. But even if he doesn't, we're still not going that way. We're still not following. We're still not bowing our knee to what your culture bows its knee to because God is king. And he can take our life and do whatever he wants with it. Do you want that kind of boldness, that kind of faith? If you're in Christ this morning, you are a stranger in a strange land. This is not your home, as homey as it feels. And especially when we live in a comfortable culture. All of us in this room have comfort. We have Wealth. We have good things. We have been blessed richly, materially by God compared to 99% of the world around us. And it makes it very easy to feel at home and at ease in this world. Do you remember that this is not your home? You are a foreigner who answers to a higher authority than this world's paltry kings and gods. Where does your allegiance lie? Does it align, does it align with Jesus Christ? The God who took on shame in order to redeem you, to bring you out of your darkness and into his light. But maybe you're here this morning and you think, man, Babylon sure feels like home. This is a great looking place. I mean, everything is green. We got cars, we got houses, we've got security, we've got money. This palace is a castle of cards and one gust of wind. We'll knock it down. Bell, Nebo, Aku, they can't save you. Even if you call them cash, sex appeal, and philanthropy, they still can't save you. They'll still be an empty identity. And I pray that you will see that. And as we walk this journey together through Daniel, I pray that you see in us here at Trinity some folks who stand out from this strange world. Not because we're exceptional, but because an exceptional man named Jesus has formed and filled us. Because my identity is in him, not in all the things that this world clamors over to cling to. This morning we're introduced to Daniel. We're introduced to his friends. And we're going to meet them. We're going to find their stories. But ultimately, this book is not about introducing us to Daniel. It's about introducing us to Jesus Christ, to one whom Daniel, in the back half of this book, 
is going to see from a distance and is going to be floored by. So as we go along this journey, as we enter into this strange place, as strangers in a strange land, I ask you this morning, examine your own heart, examine our culture, ask where are you standing in and where are you standing out? Where have you found your identity here and where do you need to place your true identity and your living hope who is the same yesterday, today, and forever? By his grace, he'll help us to do that. So let's talk at group Tuesday night, Thursday night, about how God can, is helping us to find our identity, where we need to cut ourselves off, where we need to see that he is the one that forms us. He is the one that fills us. And let's prepare each other to walk this week as strangers in a strange land. Let's pray. Our God and Father, God, we thank you for your faithfulness, even when it is a harsh faithfulness, even when you do not ride to our deliverance, even when you, you make your hand fierce against us in order to break us of our self-sufficiency, break us of our love of self, break us of our sinfulness, and bring us back to you. Thank you that you always keep your promises and that there is no dark place that you will ever send us to that you do not walk with us. Father, as we meet these four men and others like them who were sent to Babylon, may we see in them people whose trust was in God, in Yahweh, in you. And may you make in us, cultivate in us that same kind of faith that withstands the forces of a culture that seeks to, to rip them out, to drive them away. Come, may our hearts cling to Jesus. May he be the author and perfecter of our faith this week. May he grow us, mold us, shape us, so that next Sunday we feel like more strangers to this world than we do today because we are a people with a true home with a living hope. God, glorify yourself through your word, through your people. And may people look at us and see something against the backdrop of this world that is compelling. May they see through us. May they see Christ. Strengthen us to that end, Father, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.